Section 15 of Man and Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man and Wife by Wilkie Collins. Second Scene, Chapter the Twelfth. Arnold. Meanwhile, Arnold remained shut up in the head waiter's pantry, chafing secretly at the position forced upon him. He was, for the first time in his life, in hiding from another person, and that person a man. Twice, stung to it by the inevitable loss of self-respect which his situation occasioned, he had gone to the door, determined to face Sir Patrick boldly, and twice he had abandoned the idea in mercy to Anne. It would have been impossible for him to set himself right with Blanche's guardian without betraying the unhappy woman whose secret he was bound in honour to keep. "'I wish to heaven I had never come here,' was the useless aspiration that escaped him as he doggedly seated himself on the dresser to wait till Sir Patrick's departure set him free. After an interval, not by any means the long interval which he had anticipated, his solitude was enlivened by the appearance of Father Bishopriggs. "'Well,' cried Arnold, jumping off the dresser, "'is the coast clear?' There were occasions when Mr. Bishopriggs became on a sudden unexpectedly hard of hearing. This was one of them. "'Who do you feign the paintry?' he asked, without paying the slightest attention to Arnold's question. "'Snug and private. A pet moss in the wilderness, as you may say.' His one available eye, which had begun by looking at Arnold's face, dropped slowly downward, and fixed itself in mute but eloquent expectation on Arnold's waistcoat pocket. "'I understand,' said Arnold. "'I promise to pay you for the Patmos, eh? There you are.' Mr. Bishopriggs pocketed the money with a dreary smile and a sympathetic shake of the head. Other waiters would have returned thanks. The sage of Craig Fernie returned a few brief remarks instead. Admirable in many things, Father Bishopriggs was especially great at drawing a moral. He drew a moral on this occasion from his own gratuity. "'Here I am, as ye say. Mercy preserve us! Ye need the siller every turn when there's a woman at your heels. It's an awful reflection. Ye canna hae anything to do with a sex they call the opposite sex, without it being an expense to ye. There's this young lady o' yours, I doot she'll have been an expense to ye from the first. When ye were courtin' her, ye did it all go bail with the open hand. Presents and keepsakes, flowers and jewellery, and little dogs, sir expenses all of them. Hang your reflections, has Sir Patrick left the inn? The reflections of Mr. Bishopriggs declined to be disposed of in anything approaching to a summary way. On they flowed from their parent source, as slowly and as smoothly as ever. No, you're married to her. There's her bonnets and goons and underclothing, her ribbons, laces, fur billows and fall-alls. A sure expense again. What is the expense of cutting your reflections short, Mr. Bishopriggs? Thirdly and lastly, if ye canna agree with her as time gives on, if there's incompatibility of temper betwixt ye, in short, 
if ye want a wee bit separation heh sirs ye put your hand in your pocket and come to an amicable understanding with her in that way or maybe she takes ye into court and puts her hand in your pocket and comes to a hostile understanding with ye there show me a woman and i'll show ye a man not far off wha has more expenses on his back than he ever bargained for arnold's patience would last no longer he turned to the door mr bishopriggs with equal alacrity on his side turned to the matter in hand yes sir the room is e'en clear o sir patrick and the leddies alane and waiting for ye in a moment more arnold was back in the sitting-room well he asked anxiously what is it bad news from lady lundy's anne closed and directed the letter to blanche which she had just completed no she replied nothing to interest you what did sir patrick want only to warn me they have found out at windygates that i am here that's awkward isn't it not in the least i can manage perfectly i have nothing to fear don't think of me think of yourself i am not suspected am i thank heaven no but there is no knowing what may happen if you stay here ring the bell at once and ask the waiter about the trains struck by the unusual obscurity of the sky at that hour of the evening arnold went to the window the rain had come and was falling heavily the view on the moor was fast disappearing in mist and darkness pleasant weather to travel in he said the railway and exclaimed impatiently it's getting late see about the railway arnold walked to the fireplace to ring the bell the railway timetable hanging over it met his eye here's the information i want he said to anne if i only knew how to get at it down up a m p m what a cursed confusion i believe they do it on purpose anne joined him at the fireplace i understand it i'll help you did you say it was the up-train you wanted what is the name of the station you stop at arnold told her she followed the intricate network of lines and figures with her finger suddenly stopped looked again to make sure and turned from the timetable with a face of blank despair the last train for the day had gone an hour since in the silence which followed that discovery a first flash of lightning passed across the window and the low roll of thunder sounded the outbreak of the storm. "'What's to be done now?' asked Arnold. In the face of the storm, Anne answered without hesitation, "'You must take a carriage and drive.' "'Drive? They told me it was three-and-twenty miles by railway from the station to my place, let alone the distance from this inn to the station.' "'What does the distance matter? Mr. Brinkworth, you can't possibly stay here.' A second flash of lightning crossed the window, the roll of the thunder came nearer. Even Arnold's good temper began to be a little ruffled by Anne's determination to get rid of him. He sat down with the air of a man who had made up his mind not to leave the house. "'Do you hear that?' he asked, as the sound of the thunder died away grandly, and the hard pattering of the rain on the window became audible once more. "'If I ordered horses, do you think they would let me have them in such weather as this?' and if they did do you suppose the horses could face it on the moor no no miss sylvester i am sorry to be in the way but the train has gone and the night and the storm have come i have no choice but to stay here anne still maintained her own view 
but less resolutely than before. After what you have told the landlady, she said, think of the embarrassment, the cruel embarrassment of our position, if you stop at the inn till to-morrow morning. Is that all? returned Arnold. Anne looked up at him quickly and angrily. No, he was quite unconscious of having said anything that could offend her. His rough masculine sense broke its way unconsciously through all the little feminine subtleties and delicacies of his companion, and looked the position practically in the face for what it was worth, and no more. "'Where's the embarrassment?' he asked, pointing to the bedroom door. "'There's your room all ready for you, and here's the sofa in this room all ready for me. If you had seen the places I have slept in at sea—' She interrupted him without ceremony. The places he had slept in at sea were of no earthly importance. The one question to consider was the place he was to sleep in that night. "'If you must stay,' she rejoined, "'can't you get a room in some other part of the house?' But one last mistake in dealing with her in her present nervous condition was left to make, and the innocent Arnold made it. "'In some other part of the house,' he repeated jestingly, "'the landlady would be scandalized. Mr. Bishopriggs would never allow it.' She rose and stamped her foot impatiently on the floor. "'Don't joke!' she exclaimed. "'This is no laughing matter.' She paced the room excitedly. "'I don't like it. I don't like it.' Arnold looked after her with a stare of boyish wonder. "'What puts you out so?' he asked. "'Is it the storm?' She threw herself on the sofa again. "'Yes,' she said shortly, "'it's the storm.' Arnold's inexhaustible good nature was at once roused to activity again. "'Shall we have the candles?' he suggested, "'and shut the weather out.' She turned irritably on the sofa without replying. "'I'll promise to go away the first thing in the morning,' he went on. "'Do try and take it easy, and don't be angry with me.' "'Come, come, you wouldn't turn a dog out, Miss Sylvester, on such a night as this!' He was irresistible. The most sensitive woman breathing could not have accused him of failing toward her in any single essential of consideration and respect. He wanted tact, poor fellow. But who could expect him to have learned that always superficial and sometimes dangerous accomplishment in the life he had led at sea?' At the sight of his honest, pleading face, Anne recovered possession of her gentler and sweeter self. She made her excuses for her irritability with a grace that enchanted him. "'We'll have a pleasant evening of it yet,' cried Arnold in his hearty way, and rang the bell. The bell was hung outside the door of that Patmos in the wilderness, otherwise known as the head-waiter's pantry. Mr. Bishopriggs, employing his brief leisure in the seclusion of his own apartment, had just mixed a glass of the hot and comforting liquor called toddy in the language of North Britain, and was just lifting it to his lips when the summons from Arnold invited him to leave his grog. "'Hold your screeching tongue!' cried Mr. Bishopriggs, addressing the bell through the door. "'You're worse than a woman when your aunts begin!' The bell, like the woman, went on again. Mr. Bishopriggs, equally pertinacious, went on with his toddy. "'Aye, aye, ye may e'en wring your heart out, but ye won't part a Scotchman from his glass. It's maybe the end of their dinner they'll be wantin'. Sir Patrick came in at the fair beginning of it, and spoilt the collops, like the dour devil he is.' The bell rang for the third time. 
I, I, ring away. Ah, do yon young gentleman's little better than a belly god. There's a scandalous haste to comfort the carnal part of him and all this ringing. He knows nothing o' Wayne, added Mr. Bishopriggs, on whose mind Arnold's discovery of the watered sherry still dwelt unpleasantly. The lightning quickened and lit the sitting-room horribly with its lurid glare. The thunder rolled nearer and nearer over the black gulf of the moor. Arnold had just raised his hand to ring for the fourth time when the inevitable knock was heard at the door. It was useless to say, come in. The immutable laws of Bishopriggs had decided that a second knock was necessary. Storm or no storm, the second knock came, and then, and not till then, the sage appeared, with the dish of untasted collops in his hand. "'Candles!' said Arnold. Mr. Bishopriggs set the collops, in the language of England, minced meat, upon the table, lit the candles on the mantelpiece, faced about with the fire of recent toddy flaming in his nose, and waited for further orders, before he went back to his second glass. Anne declined to return to the dinner. Arnold ordered Mr. Bishopriggs to close the shutters, and sat down to dine by himself. "'It looks greasy and smells greasy,' he said to Anne, turning over the collops with a spoon. "'I won't be ten minutes dining. Will you have some tea?' Anne declined again. Arnold tried her once more. What shall we do to get through the evening? Do what you like, she answered resignedly. Arnold's mind was suddenly illuminated by an idea. I've got it, he exclaimed. We'll kill the time as our cabin passengers used to kill it at sea. He looked over his shoulder at Mr. Bishopriggs. Waiter, bring a pack of cards. What's that ye're wantin'? asked Mr. Bishopriggs, doubting the evidence of his own senses. "'A pack of cards,' repeated Arnold. "'Cards!' echoed Mr. Bishopriggs. "'A pack of cards! "'The devil's allegories and the devil's own colours, red and black! "'I winna execute your order. "'For your own soul's sake, I winna do it. "'Hey, you lived your time of life, and are you no awakened yet "'to the awful sinfulness of gambling with the cards?' "'Just as you please,' returned Arnold. "'You will find me awakened when I go away to the awful folly of feeing a waiter.' "'Does that mean you're bent on the cards?' asked Mr. Bishopriggs, suddenly betraying signs of worldly anxiety in his look and manner. "'Yes, that means I am bent on the cards.' "'I take up my testimony against him, but I'm not telling ye that I can lay my hands on him if I like.' "'What do they say in my country? "'Him that will to Cooper, mount to Cooper. "'And what do they say in your country? "'Needs must when the devil drives.' "'With that excellent reason for turning his back on his own principles, "'Mr. Bishopriggs shuffled out of the room to fetch the cards. "'The dresser-drawer in the pantry contained a choice selection of miscellaneous objects, "'a pack of cards being among them. "'In searching for the cards,' The wary hand of the head-waiter came in contact with a morsel of crumpled-up paper. He drew it out and recognized the letter which he had picked up in the sitting-room some hours since. "'Ay, ay, I'll do well, I trow, to look at this while my mind's running on it,' said Mr. Bishopriggs. "'The cards may e'en find their way to the parlour by other hands than mine.' 
he forthwith sent the cards to Arnold by his second-in-command, closed the pantry door, and carefully smoothed out the crumpled sheet of paper on which the two letters were written. This done, he trimmed his candle, and began with the letter in ink, which occupied the first three pages of the sheet of note-paper. It ran thus. Windygates House, August 12, 1868 Geoffrey Delamain, I have waited in the hope that you would ride over from your brother's place and see me, and I have waited in vain. Your conduct to me is cruelty itself. I will bear it no longer. Consider, in your own interests, consider, before you drive the miserable woman who has trusted you to despair. You have promised me marriage by all that is sacred. I claim your promise. I insist on nothing less than to be what you vowed I should be, what I have waited all this weary time to be, what I am, in the sight of heaven, your wedded wife. Lady Lundy gives a lawn-party here on the fourteenth. I know you have been asked. I expect you to accept her invitation. If I don't see you, I won't answer for what may happen. My mind is made up to endure the suspense no longer. Oh, Geoffrey, remember the past. Be faithful, be just to your loving wife, Anne Sylvester. Mr. Bishopriggs paused. His commentary on the correspondence so far was simple enough. Hot words in ink from the lady to the gentleman. He ran his eye over the second letter on the fourth page of the paper, and ended cynically, A trifle colder in pencil from the gentleman to the lady. The way of the world, sirs, from the time Adam downwards, the way of the world. The second letter ran thus. Dear Anne, just called to London to my father. They have telegraphed him in a bad way. Stop where you are, and I will write you. Trust the bearer. Upon my soul I'll keep my promise. Your loving husband that is to be, Geoffrey Delamain. Windygates House, August 14, 4 p.m. In a mortal hurry, train starts at 4.30. There it ended. Who are the parties in the parlour? Is one of them Sylvester and t'other Delamain? pondered Mr. Bishopriggs, slowly folding the letter up again in its original form. He says, what's been interpreted may all this mean? He mixed himself a second glass of toddy as an aid to reflection, and sat sipping the liquor and twisting and turning the letter in his gouty fingers. It was not easy to see his way to the true connection between the lady and gentleman in the parlour and the two letters now in his possession. They might be themselves the writers of the letters, or they might be only friends of the writers. Who was to decide? In the first case the lady's object would appear to have been as good as gained, for the two had certainly asserted themselves to be man and wife in his own presence and in the presence of the landlady. In the second case, the correspondence so carelessly thrown aside might, for all a stranger new to the contrary, prove to be of some importance in the future. Acting on this latter view, Mr. Bishopriggs, whose past experience as a bit-clerk body in Sir Patrick's chambers had made a man of business of him, produced his pen and ink, and endorsed the letter with a brief dated statement of the circumstances under which he had found it. I'll do weel to keep the document, he thought to himself. Who knows, but there'll be a reward offered for it end of these days. Eh, eh, there may be the worth of a five-pound note in this to a poor lad like me. With that comforting reflection, 
he drew out a battered tin cash-box from the inner recesses of the drawer, and locked up the stolen correspondence to bide its time. The storm rose higher and higher as the evening advanced. In the sitting-room the state of affairs, perpetually changing, now presented itself under another new aspect. Arnold had finished his dinner, and had sent it away. He had next drawn a side-table up to the sofa on which Anne lay, had shuffled the pack of cards, and was now using all his powers of persuasion to induce her to try one game at écarté with him, by way of diverting her attention from the tumult of the storm. In sheer weariness she gave up contesting the matter, and raising herself languidly on the sofa, said she would try to play. Nothing can make matters worse than they are, she thought despairingly, as Arnold dealt the cards for her. Nothing can justify my inflicting my own wretchedness on this kind-hearted boy. Two worse players never probably sat down to a game. Anne's attention perpetually wandered, and Anne's companion was in all human probability the most incapable card-player in Europe. Anne turned up the trump, the nine of diamonds. Arnold looked at his hand, and proposed. Anne declined to change the cards. Arnold announced with undiminished good humour that he saw his way clearly now to losing the game, and then played his first card, the Queen of Trumps. Anne took it with the King, and forgot to declare the King. She played the Ten of Trumps. Arnold unexpectedly discovered the Eight of Trumps in his hand. What a pity, he said, as he played it. Hello, you haven't marked the King. I'll do it for you. That's two, no, three to you. I said I should lose the game. Couldn't be expected to do anything, could I, with such a hand as mine? I've lost everything, now I've lost my trumps. You've to play. Anne looked at her hand. At the same moment the lightning flashed into the room through the ill-closed shutters. The roar of the thunder burst over the house, and shook it to its foundation. The screaming of some hysterical female tourist, and the barking of a dog, rose shrill from the upper floor of the inn. Anne's nerves could support it no longer. She flung her cards on the table, and sprang to her feet. "'I can play no more,' she said. "'Forgive me, I am quite unequal to it. My head burns, my heart stifles me.' She began to pace the room again. Aggravated by the effect of the storm on her nerves, her first vague distrust of the false position into which she and Arnold had allowed themselves to drift had strengthened, by this time, into a downright horror of their situation which was not to be endured. Nothing could justify such a risk as the risk they were now running. They had dined together like married people, and there they were at that moment shut in together and passing the evening like man and wife. "'Oh, Mr. Brinkworth,' she pleaded, "'think, for Blanche's sake, think, is there no way out of this?' Arnold was quietly collecting the scattered cards. "'Blanche again,' he said, with the most exasperating composure. "'I wonder how she feels in this storm.' In Anne's excited state the reply almost maddened her. She turned from Arnold and hurried to the door. "'I don't care,' she cried wildly. "'I won't let this deception go on. I'll do what I ought to have done before. Come what may of it, I'll tell the landlady the truth.' She opened the door, and was on the point of stepping into the passage, when she stopped and started violently. Was it possible, in that dreadful weather, that she had actually heard the sound of carriage-wheels on the strip of paved road outside the inn? Yes, others had heard the sound, too. The hobbling figure of Mr. Bishopriggs passed her in the passage, making for the house-door. The hard voice of the landlady rang through the inn, ejaculating astonishment in broad scotch. 
Anne closed the sitting-room door again, and turned to Arnold, who had risen in surprise to his feet. "'Travellers!' she exclaimed. "'At this time!' "'And in this weather!' added Arnold. "'Can it be, Geoffrey?' she asked, going back to the old vain delusion that he might yet feel for her and return. Arnold shook his head. "'Not Geoffrey. Whoever else it may be, not Geoffrey.' Mrs. Inchbare suddenly entered the room with her cap ribbons flying, her eyes staring, and her bones looking harder than ever. "'Here, mistress,' she said to Anne, "'who do you think has driven here to see here from Windygates House, and been o'ertaken in the storm?' Anne was speechless. Arnold put the question, "'Who is it?' "'Who is it?' repeated Mrs. Inchbare. "'It's just the bonny young lady, Miss Blanche herself.' An irrepressible cry of horror burst from Anne. The landlady set it down to the lightning, which flashed into the room again at the same moment. "'Eh, mistress, you'll find Miss Blanche a bit bolder than to skull a flash o' lightning, that girl. Here she is, the bonny birdie,' exclaimed Mrs. Inchbare, deferentially backing out into the passage again. Blanche's voice reached them, calling for Anne. Anne caught Arnold by the hand and wrung it hard. "'Go!' she whispered. The next instant she was at the mantelpiece and had blown out both the candles. Another flash of lightning came through the darkness and showed Blanche's figure standing at the door. End of section fifteen. Recording by John Trevithick.